You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. If you would turn in your Bible uh, to John chapter 10. Thank you, Matt, praise team, band for leading us this morning. Adam feels such freedom to be able to, to be other places knowing that we have such a deep bench. And so, Matt, again, thank you for leading us so faithfully uh, this morning, preparing us for worship through the preaching of the word. Be thou my vision. It is a prayer. It's a gift. But we do have responsibility. God is sovereign and his sovereignty is compatible with our responsibility. And one of our responsibilities is to gather for corporate worship. And that is a means by which he is our vision, corporate worship. So we're going to be looking this morning in John 10, 14 to 21. But to get the context, if you would look with me in verse 10 that we looked at a few weeks ago. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Who's they? The sheep, the followers, those who who follow the shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. The inference being, our shepherd's not a hired hand and he cares for the sheep. Let's pray. Father, we need this passage today because we are sheep and the sheep need to hear the voice of their shepherd every day. And you're the good shepherd who cares for your sheep. We need to sense that care today in this broken world of filled with wolves. Give us ears to hear. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So tomorrow, uh, March the 6th, is the 548th birthday of one of the greatest, most accomplished, most famous, successful, wealthy artist of all time. Michelangelo, born in 1475, just prior to the Reformation. And as a young artist, he became famous for for many works, including uh, the carving of King David from an 18-foot marble slab that had been discarded. After he did that, Pope Julius hired him to paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, which set in motion a series of events that would lead to the Reformation, but that's another story for another day. But Michelangelo, by all accounts, was a genius. 
Now, we use that word today for guys that can draw up football plays. But this guy was a thoroughgoing genius. But he was shepherdless. Our better said, Psalm 49, speaking of the unbeliever, death was his shepherd. That is, when the good shepherd is not your shepherd, something else is. Nature abhors a vacuum. And outside of Christ is the realm of death. So death was his shepherd. And that bore much fruit. Michelangelo had an utter disdain for people. He could not stand being around people. He could not get around, uh, be around people. As talented as he was, as famous and wealthy as he was, he was more famous and wealthy than anybody and more talented than anybody around him. He burned with jealousy. And he stayed in a perpetual bad mood. His appearance reflected his spiritual and emotional state. He would wear rags that he would rarely change. And many people say that he never took a bath. Though he was very wealthy, he lived as a miser. He ate whatever he found, and sometimes that was just crumbs. He hated small talk, and he did not like women. The only friend, in fact, that he had was the guy that worked as a servant for him in his house for 25 years. At times, he would be so depressed that he would be at the point of insanity. And he lived in perpetual fear of hell. But through the influences of the reformers, like Martin Luther, Bullinger, and others, this shepherdless man came to know that the good shepherd knew him. He came to know and realize that the good shepherd had laid down his life for this sheep, Michelangelo. And that the ground of his salvation was not his merit, not his performance, not his works, not his goodness, Because he could never be good enough. He realized that. The ground of his salvation was the work of Christ himself. The work of Christ alone. Towards the end of his life, here's what he wrote. Painting nor sculpture now can lull to rest my soul. That's where he sought rest, was in painting and, and sculptures and his works of art. He realized it could never bring rest to his soul. That turns now to his great love on high, whose arms to clasp us on the cross are spread. He died on February the 18th, 1563. He contracted a fever uh, as he was walking through the rain. And among his papers, someone found uh, this unfinished prayer. My dear Lord, you who alone clothe and strip souls and with your blood purify 
and heal them of countless sins and human drives. Now, what could account for such a change in disposition? A man who formerly hated people, who lived with a perpetual foul temper, a man who lived in utter jealousy and anger, to go from that to a man who worshiped the living Christ. Well, the sheep heard the voice of the shepherd. That's what accounts for that. He came to know the good shepherd knew him. And even though he knew all that was foul about Michelangelo, he laid down his life for this sheep to save him from the wolves. From the wolves. We saw that last time. The good shepherd lays down his life for a sheep. But we also see this week, as Michelangelo came to know, that the good shepherd knows his sheep. If you would look with me in verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. How do you know if you're a sheep? You know Jesus. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Five times in this passage, he says he lays down his life. You think that's an important point? It's a very important point for us. But notice in verse 14, he repeats what he said in verse 11. We saw last week, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And here, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Of course, this is the fourth I am statement, which is Jesus' way of communicating that he is God, a very God. When God responded to Moses' request, show me your way, show me your glory, what is your name? He says, I am that I am. And we have seen that Jesus is, says, I am the, the bread of life. John 6, I am the light of the world. John 8, I am the door. John 9, and here, I am the good shepherd. These I am statements collectively make a cumulative case that all that we need in life is found in the good shepherd. And our problem is looking outside of the good shepherd for unmediated blessings. All true blessings come mediated through this one mediator between God and man, the good shepherd. And so here, in distinction from the thieves and the robbers who are the, the false teachers, the Pharisees in this case, this shepherd knows his sheep. And what's remarkable, <coughs> he compares it to his 
knowledge of the Father and the Father's knowledge of him. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Now this does not mean that the fellowship found on earth between the shepherd and his sheep is just as close as the eternal relationship that he has with his father. But the former, our relationship with him, his relationship with us is grounded and patterned after the relationship, eternal relationship that he has with the father. This eternal relationship in the Godhead, that's remarkable language. Four times in these two verses, we see the word no. And if you're, if you're studying your Bible, always look for repetitions in wording. That kind of gives you something uh, to go with as far as the emphasis of a text. This is not just a intellectual knowledge, like you know the score of a ball game. This is experiential knowledge. As we have seen, if you're a sheep, he knows your name. We saw that earlier in the passage. We saw it in chapter 10, verse 3. We saw early in our study of John that before Simon had ever met Jesus, Jesus knew his name. Chapter 1, verse 42. We will see at the empty tomb when Mary is grieving because she couldn't find her, her Savior, that he spoke her name. Jesus knew her name. He also knows our natures. He knows our dispositions. He knows our struggles. He knows what tempts you. He knows what discourages you. He knows what encourages you. He knows everything about you. He knows your natures. He knows your needs. He's the good shepherd. He knows you better than you know you. In fact, much of what you think you know about yourself is deceptive. The heart is deceitfully wicked. He knows you thoroughly, and he knows you perfectly. He knows all that needs to be known about you. And that's why you can say that the main point of Psalm 23, which starts with, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You could say the main point of Psalm 23 is the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And how does it end? All the days of my life. Let me say that again. The main point of Psalm 23, it begins with this, I shall not want. And it ends with this, all the days of my life. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If you're a sheep, you can say this. You can praise him for this. I shall not want all the days of my life. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Sure, goodness and mercy being a person. The good shepherd. And because he's the good shepherd, John describes him as the good shepherd because he, as Hebrews calls him, the great shepherd, and because he is, as Peter describes him, the chief shepherd, 1 Peter 5, verse 4, and because he knows his sheep, his shepherding ministry 
is tailor-made to fit each individual sheep. Now, that's comforting. Now, what should that do? It should, that knowledge should be the knowledge you need to overcome your anxiety and any jealousy or discontentment you may have with your circumstances. He knows you, and he knows what you need, and he's going to give you what you need. You rest in that. The good shepherd knows his sheep. What we see as well, and this impacts most of us here, if not all of us, the good shepherd has international sheep. Praise God for that. Look with me in verse 16. And I have other sheep who are not of this fold. How do we know that? The text tells us. But let me give you another reason we know this. We're sitting here. <laughs> We're sitting here. He has other sheep not of this fold. And notice he says, I have other sheep. Every sheep, including those who had not yet been saved, not yet even been born for that matter, was known by name by the good shepherd. In verse 14, he calls them my own. He owns you. That's one of the reasons we have eternal security. He owns you. And if one sheep slipped through his hands, the good shepherd is not infallible. But he is. He owns you. The opening verses of the chapter have already spoken of this, this fold that you see here. Um, uh, this fold was Judaism. And, and, and there has been, throughout the Gospel of John, this remnant that he calls out from Judaism. The fold. Uh, we saw it early with the calling of the disciples. He called them, and they followed him. Why? Because the, the sheep hear the voice of their shepherd. We saw it in chapter 9 most recently with this man born blind who is healed physically. But most importantly, he is healed spiritually so that in verse 38 of chapter 9, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. We see it in chapter 11 with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And so you have this fold known as Judaism that Jesus has a people, followers of Christ. But notice here, I have other sheep. Now, what's remarkable about this, he has them now. He has them before they even believe. Why? Well, we've already seen this in chapter 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me. That's a factual calling. All that the Father gives me will come to me. In the Lord Jesus Christ, a new age is dawning. This is the definitive offspring of Abraham. Under the old covenant, Acts 14, 16 says, in past generations, that's speaking of the generations prior to the new covenant, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own way. 
All right, so that, that is, now you had a, a Rahab here and, and a Ruth there. You had uh, people from the nations who would, who would believe in Yahweh and his, his coming Messiah, and they would be engrafted into the, the old covenant people of God. But it was not a, it was not a, a common thing that you saw under the old covenant. But now... He has an international people. And this is clearly anticipated in the Old Testament. Uh, this doesn't catch us by surprise. As we have seen in Genesis chapter 12, God says that through your offspring, Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. That is, saved. What nations? The ones that were dispersed at the Tower of Babel under judgment. And so from the very beginning, God's plan was to welcome all the nations of the earth through the offspring of Abraham. Listen to this passage from Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is writing 700 years before the coming of Messiah. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him. Besides all those already gathered. Second Chronicles 6 verse 33. Hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. The foreigner being the Gentile. In order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. How about Daniel 7 verse 14 where it's speaking about this son of man who will restore uh, vice regency to the people of God. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Now, that's not speaking of every individual because we're not universalists. Uh, not everyone will be saved, but the sheep will hear the voice from the nations. Psalm 22, verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. Get this, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. So this is anticipating, anticipating. So here's the question, what is your family background? Are you European? Do you have a European background? Do you have an African background? Maybe you have a Scandinavian background. Or maybe it's a, it's a Mexican background. Or an Asian background. A Middle Eastern background. If you are a sheep this morning, you are the fruit of the must of what Jesus says. Now what do you mean by must? Well, look at the second part of verse 16. I must. I must bring them also. And they will, not they might, they will listen to my voice. There are several must in the New Testament. You must be born again. But there are several must with regard to Jesus, particularly in the New Testament. So for instance, we've already seen in John chapter 3, verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He must be lifted up. 
Why is that? Not that God had to send a Savior to be who He is, but in order to save sinners like us and be faithful to who He is, the Son of Man must be lifted up. How about chapter 2 of verse 49 of Luke? Did you not know that I must, this is Jesus speaking to his parents, I must be in my father's house? Do you know why he must be in the father's house? First of all, he was a worshiper. But secondly, he's fulfilling all righteousness for us. We don't worship God as we should. In fact, we are by nature false worshipers. We're idolaters. As old Bob Dylan song said, everybody worships something. Everybody serves something, right? So he must be in his father's house. Why? To fulfill all righteousness for us. He worships as our substitute in our place. Because our worship is naturally false worship. And even as Christians, our worship does not comport with the glory of God as it should. How about Luke 19 verse 5? He says to the tax collector who were the most despised people in Rome in the Roman Empire, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. I love that. In other words, he's coming to save Zacchaeus. It's in the same chapter he says, the Son of Man comes to seek and to save that which is lost. And here, I must bring them also. Here's the point. When Jesus says must... Things begin to happen. Things begin to hop around. In this case, it will impact the world. This how is an important verse for world missions. I must, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Indeed, Jesus has other sheep, the Gentiles. And it's hard to be any clearer on the sovereignty of our Lord Jesus Christ in his saving work and saving plans in gathering his own sheep. Indeed, they will listen to my voice. But again, what we teach here at Lakeview is that not only God's sovereign in these things, that is compatible with human responsibility. There's a mystery to that relationship, but if we lose sight of either one, we're out of balance. Indeed, the sovereignty of Christ in saving his sheep does not undermine human responsibility. And what is our responsibility? It's the Great Commission. In fact, you are the recipient of the Great Commission. Were it not for those faithful to the Great Commission, the gospel would have never come to this continent. And so as recipients of the Great Commission, as Jesus is saving his other sheep, not of the fold of Judaism, we must, in response, be stewards of what we have received. That's why we take the gospel, not just to Auburn, and not just to Alabama, and not just to North America, but to the nations. Listen to Romans 10, for that matter. How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Who's they? The sheep that must hear. 
And how are they to hear without someone preached? Do you know that no one is saved apart from hearing and believing the gospel? No one. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And who sends them? The church sends them. No one else is going to send them. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And I want you to notice the effect of this must. In a real sense, it's the reversal of Babel, where God in judgment dispersed all the peoples of the earth. Notice in the second part of verse 16, or the last part of verse 16. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. One flock, one shepherd. This is the fulfillment of a prophecy made by Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel, uh, he prophesied over the course of 22 years. He, his timeline really centers around the last Davidic king, Jehoiakim. There was another king named Zedekiah. But Zedekiah was Jehoiakim's uncle. He was not in the line of David. And, and the Messiah would come through the line of David. Zedekiah was appointed by Nebuchadnezzar. He was a puppet king. Didn't end well for him, though. But Ezekiel is pronouncing judgment and why judgment has fallen on, on Judah. He's writing during that whole time and even after uh, Judah had been depopulated and, and the temple had been destroyed and the people had been taken into Babylonian captivity. But in spite of all that, he said, God's going to be faithful to his promises. And he is going to bring restoration in spite of you. He's going to bring salvation in spite of you. He is going to raise up a son of David. And here's what that prophecy says. I will set up over them, Ezekiel 34, 23, one shepherd, my servant David. You say, well, did he believe in reincarnation? David's been dead hundreds of years. No, the son of David. This was based on the promise made to David. He will come from the family of David. And so uh, this David here is just a metaphor for the one who would come from his line. Just like Isaiah describes him as the stump of Jesse. Not Jesse, the, David's father, but the son of David. Chapters 37, 24 says, My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. Jesus is saying right here in verse 16, you have the fulfillment in me. So there will be one flock, one, one shepherd. The fall brought alienation from God and alienation with each other. And so we are separated from God and we are separated from each other. That's why it's so hard for us to get along. Unless our relationships are completely superficial, we struggle with each other. But the prophets saw a day that God would bring restoration to the entire world 
vertical reconciliation and horizontal reconciliation under the rule of the shepherd king, King David. And Jesus is saying that day is here. That day is here. Signaled by the reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles under one shepherd, under one king. Now in verses 17 to 18, Jesus is going to give us more insight as to how this will come to be. So we've seen that the good shepherd um, lays down his life for his sheep. We've seen that the good shepherd knows his sheep. We've seen that the good shepherd has international sheep. And now we see the good shepherd is going to be resurrected for his sheep. That's how he's going to bring this about. Look at me in verse 17. <clears throat> for this reason, the Father loves me. Now, this does not mean that the Father didn't love the Son until the incarnation. That's not what he's saying. But, but the eternal love in the Godhead, in this case, the Father's love for the Son, is going to culminate in the greatest sacrifice, the greatest act of obedience in history, willingness to bear the shame of Calvary for the sheep. That's what he's saying here. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life. Notice that I may take it up again. And so this love culminates in this gruesome act of laying down his life to reverse the curse on sin and yet a savior who stays in the tomb does no one any good. There's been a whole lot of fall messiahs who claim to be the savior, but when they died, they were dead. Not this savior. He would take up his life again. Now, we understand that there is an inseparable operation in the Godhead. And so it's not just Jesus taking up his life. It is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three persons in the Godhead, involved in the resurrection of the Son. But here he says, I will take my life up again. This resurrection would be the reversal of sin's curse on humanity and on the creation. Now, there's so much that could be said about the resurrection of Jesus. Um, the resurrection was the Father's amen to the it is finished of the Son. But hear what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. You know this passage, but it's important for us to remember this. I delivered to you as of first importance. So what does that tell us right off the bat? All truth is God's truth, and all truth is important, but there are certain truths that are more important than other truths. Uh, the immaturity in the church is seen when everything is a first-order issue. Paul says everything's not a first-order issue. We, we can agree to disagree on some second, third-order issues, but there are first-order issues. And here, Paul is giving us the first-order issues that we must agree on. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. In other words, this was prophesied by the Old Testament, that he was buried, 
The burial proved he was dead. That he was raised on, from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. So the reason the resurrection is of first importance, Paul says, is because the resurrection is the great event that saves us. Now, we're not saying the cross doesn't save us. They travel together. You have to have the cross where God's wrath is satisfied in the Son, but that does us no good unless He is raised from the dead. And He was. That's why Paul will write in just a few verses later, in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. When I was an intern, there was a local pastor in this town. I won't say what church. Makes you wonder if it's a church, though. In the paper at Easter, he said, even if they found the bones of Jesus, I'd still be a Christian. Well, that's just nonsense. They're not going to find the bones of Jesus, for one. But Paul says, if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And that's why the resurrection is so very vital. So raising Jesus from the dead, God pronounced he was satisfied with the sin offering. He announced his approval of the finished work of the Son, who laid down his life. For his sheep. Said another way, he laid down his life so that you don't have to bear sin's curse for all eternity. That's how much he loved you. It's why Jesus came. And hence, verse 18, no one takes it from me. I'm not a victim. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. Why? Because he's the I am. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. They're on the same page. There's nothing highly unusual about heroic figures dying in the quest to defeat evil. That's pretty common if you know anything about history, war history, other kinds of history. Maybe you've heard of John Knox, the great reformer in Scotland. What a study. Read a biography on Knox sometime. He was a powerful preacher, though he hated his own preaching, so humble. But he was also a prayer warrior. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon said of Knox, the greatest event in the history of Scotland was when John Knox went to his knees. Uh, Queen Mary, who was Knox's arch enemy because she was Roman Catholic and Knox was a reformer, she conceded this. I fear Knox's prayers more than I fear 10,000 soldiers. May it be said of everyone at Lakeview. But generally, there's a great figure, not as well known, 
behind the great figures who are known. In this case was a man who discipled Knox. You've probably never heard his name. George Wishart. George Wishart. He, he preached all over Scotland, denouncing the papacy, preaching the gospel of grace, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he was eventually arrested and burned at the stake on March the 1st, this past Wednesday, 477 years ago. As he was chained to the stake, he famously said, for this cause I was sent that I should suffer this fire for Christ's sake. I fear not this fire, and I pray that you may not fear them that slay the body, but have no power to slay the soul. And then he turned to the executioner, and here's what he said. Lo, here is a token I forgive thee. He kissed him on the cheek, and then he said, do thine office. Do thine office. Do your job. Your job is to burn me. Go ahead and do it. His martyrdom became the fuel for Knox's ministry. If my mentor can give his life for the Lord Jesus Christ, then I'll give my life for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it turned Scotland upside down. But here's my point. In Wishart's case, death was simply an incidental risk that he was willing to take for the sake of the mission. There was also the possibility that he could have succeeded without dying. But in the case of Jesus, the great shepherd, his death on the cross wasn't an incidental risk. It was why he came. He came to die. His death was necessary so that you as a sheep might have victory over sin, death, and the devil. The three most dangerous wolves in this broken world. Yet he laid down his life only to take it up again. And, and we see that he was in control of this throughout John. For instance, when they come to arrest him, the soldiers who come to arrest him, what happens to them? By the way, this is the only place in Scripture people fall back, the ones who come to arrest Jesus. They fall back in his presence. When he's standing before Pontius Pilate at the Roman trial, Pontius Pilate not knowing fully who this man is, says, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus responded in verse 11, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. At any time, Jesus could have stopped the crucifixion. 
He's the I am. The I am can do anything he wants. Pilate, Caiaphas, Annas, the Roman emperor, none of them had power over his life. He willingly laid down his life for his sheep so that he could be taken up in resurrection for his sheep. And that is the hope of the ages. His resurrection is the first event of the new creation. One day the new creation is going to fill every nook and cranny of this world. In that day, all weeping will be stamped underneath the feet of Jesus. All tragedy, all sadness, all mourning, all death, all sin. But his resurrection was the first event of that new creation. It's the hope of the ages. It's the gospel of the ages. And that's why it's most severely attacked. Not everyone sees it that way. And that brings us to the final point. We'll move through this quickly. The good shepherd... He lays down his life for his sheep. He knows his sheep. He has international sheep. He's going to be raised for his sheep. But don't forget this. The good shepherd, and everyone knows this, who's ever evangelized, exposes who is not sheep. Look with me in verse 19. There was again a division. That word in Greek is schism. There was a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So this is setting the stage for how the good shepherd would actually lay down his life in God's providence, it would be at the hands of sinful men. But remember why he is writing, why John is writing. He's writing, every passage he writes, every story he tells is so that we would believe. So that we would be like those who respond, these are not the words of one who's oppressed. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So that we will respond like these people. He's writing so that you and I would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we would have life in his name. He is, reading, he is re writing these things so that we who do believe would believe even more. Because we're like the man in Mark 9, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. So he's writing to every believer here that your faith would be strengthened, just like muscles are strengthened by protein and exercise. So do you believe this morning that Jesus is the good shepherd? Yes, I do. Pray, God, make me believe even more. Do you believe the good shepherd laid down his life for you? That's how much he loves you. Yes, I believe that. Pray that I would believe even more. Do you believe that he knows you? He knows your name. Why should you be anxious? Why should you be discouraged? Why should you be jealous? Why should you be discontented? He knows your nature. He knows your needs. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want all the days of my life. Do you believe that? Yes, I believe it. Pray that God would 
cause us to believe it even more. Do you believe that he has international sheep as evidenced by the, the, the numbers here this morning? Most of us are Gentiles. We're the recipients of Jesus saying, I must save the other sheep. Do you believe that he was raised for your justification? And that there's nothing you can do this week that's going to justify you more. If you mess up this week, you're not going to be less justified. Yes, I believe that. Pray that God would, would fuel that faith to believe even more. But maybe, as Matt and the musicians come forward, maybe you're here this morning, and that doesn't apply to you. Because you don't know the good shepherd. That's not a judgment. It's not a judgment at all. That was me for 23 years. That was everyone here for a time in their life. You're not born knowing the good shepherd. I do believe you're born hardwired with the, the, the intuitive knowledge that you need him. That we suppress that truth oftentimes though. And we go and look for shepherd replacements. But you need the good shepherd this morning if you don't know him. Don't go through this world shepherdless. It's a broken world. It's a pain-stained world. You need the good shepherd this morning. And you can come to him today. He already knows everything about you. He knows your sin. And here's the good news. He laid down his life for sinners just like you. And all you have to do is bring your sins to the cross. And the Bible says your sins will be forgiven and you'll have a new shepherd who will lead and feed, will provide and preserve you so that you can say, I shall not want all the days of my life. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.